Hello everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at NBA Jam, a two-on-two arcade basketball title developed and published by Midway and released to arcades back in 1993 with various home ports following. We're going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 41. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, recommendations for future episodes, or just talk about games and classic technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. And perhaps the best way to join the discussion is by joining our Discord server. The link is in the show notes. We are slowly but surely building that community. It's pretty awesome out there, if I do say so myself. So I would love it if you would join over there and join the discussion. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question. How did the game get made? Why did it get made? Where does it sit in the overall historical context of video and computer gaming? And then we'll move on to a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign star ratings or give a numerical quantitative value for each of the games. But we do talk about every game from several different perspectives. We talk about the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to determine whether a game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should still play it today. It has barely aged a day, if not at all. These are highly recommended experiences, and you should definitely seek them out. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. They are still highly recommended. Not quite Pantheon level, but still really good experiences, and I highly recommend that you give them a go. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I can't really fully recommend to the broader population. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game exists, but for the most part, the general population, I cannot recommend these titles. They may have aged a bit, or they may have had a couple of issues to begin with. And then finally, beyond our mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is NBA Jam.
NBA Jam is a two-on-two arcade basketball title developed and published by Midway and released to arcades back in 1993. Before we can talk about NBA Jam, we have to dive deep into its history, as we do for pretty much every game that we cover. The unique thing here, though, and one that I'm super pumped about, is that for NBA Jam, we get to actually go back really far into video game history. As to truly discuss its origins, we need to talk about Pong. Now, I'm going to venture a guess and say that most people listening to this podcast have heard of and may have even played Pong at some point in your lives. But just in case, Pong was pretty much the first commercially successful video game and is the game most often attributed with creating the concept of a commercially viable video game industry. It wasn't the first video game, and it wasn't even the first ping-pong-styled video game experience, but it was the title that literally transformed the world. You can think of early video and computer games as having a before-pong and after-pong period. Before-pong, video games were incredibly niche, and while they existed, there was no real proof that they'd be anything other than a passing fad. After-pong? the video game industry as we know it was effectively born. Pong, for those who may need a refresher, is an incredibly simple table tennis kind of experience developed by Atari back in 1972, where the screen consists of two paddles, which are literally just two rectangles, and a ball, which is literally just a square, that bounces in between those paddles. The goal of the game is to make the ball get past your opponent's paddle, which would earn you a point. Along the way, you have to react to a bouncing ball that can sometimes even deflect off of the top and bottom borders of the screen using some simple physics to calculate angles and trajectories. And that's pretty much it. It was, to put it mildly, a pretty simple game. But in that simplicity, there was greatness, as it attracted significant attention from people across the world. Everyone loved the easy-to-understand, simple controls, and its popularity was unlike anything anyone had seen to date. One story, which you might have heard before, but I'm going to relay it anyway because I think it is awesome, involves an early prototype of the game that Atari had installed in a local bar to help do some real-world testing and determine whether the title could potentially attract an audience. So, the team puts their game in the bar. And over the next couple days, they get some feedback that the game is pretty popular. Awesome. It sounds like they might be onto something. But then, a couple days later, they get a call that the game is malfunctioning, which Atari assumed must be the result of some unfound bug in the game's code, which they then contact Alan Alcorn, who was the original creator of the game, and they say, go and fix the game. So Alcorn goes to the bar in question to investigate the machine, only to discover that the cause of the malfunctioning game was simply that the coin mechanism was overflowing with quarters. Its popularity had broken the game. Pong would go on to influence countless arcade titles, while at the same time effectively launching the home console market in earnest. But that's not to say that Pong was the first in-home video game console. That distinction is owned by the Magnavox Odyssey. That Magnavox Odyssey was released in 1972, and it was designed with a unique concept in mind. As you might imagine, video games around this time, and remember, we're basically talking the birth of the industry. Video games were incapable of displaying any degree of graphics or colors. Any games that existed were solely comprised of geometric shapes, most often squares and rectangles, because they were pretty easy to draw. The Magnavox Odyssey was no different. 
Its hardware was designed to display some rudimentary shapes on the screen, with player imagination allowing for those shapes to become something more. The Odyssey, however, went one step further. While it was limited by the technology of the time, each game would also utilize a number of translucent overlays that players could place over their television screen, which would effectively allow for each game to have a background of sorts, and each game was programmed with the assumption that those overlays were being used, assigning various sections of the screen to specific actions. As an example, let's talk about Basketball, a Magnavox Odyssey title released in 1973. Basketball, as the name implies, is a game designed to simulate the act of playing two-player basketball, within the confines of available technology of the time. Each player was represented with a single square, and the ball was represented with a slightly smaller square, with the goal being to get the ball in the hoop, with the hoop location based on the game's translucent overlay sheet. Players could dribble the ball, which basically meant bouncing it repeatedly off of the left border of the screen, and then could move and let the ball shoot, so to speak, at the hoop, with the game keeping score of the back-and-forth action. Without the screen's overlay, the game's action would look entirely random. With it, though, there was just enough there for players to have a fun, one-on-one, basketball-like experience. Basketball for the Odyssey owns the distinction of being the first basketball game ever created, and as such, it does deserve some degree of recognition. The second basketball game ever created, however, would prove to be more influential. And that game was entitled TV Basketball, and it would be released to the arcades in 1974. Designed by Tomohiro Nishikado, who in later years would best be known as the creator of Space Invaders, TV Basketball would take the traditional Pong-based gameplay and elevate it to depict the game of basketball. So recall that most, if not all, games created during this time were only capable of drawing simple geometric shapes to represent various characters or objects in a game world, with it being up to the player to use their imagination in order to turn those shapes into something more real. With TV Basketball, Nishikado wanted to move beyond simple geometric shapes. He wanted to depict the game of basketball in a much more realistic way, at least in terms of technology available in 1974. So, Rather than rely solely on geometric shapes, Nishikado took the gameplay of Pong but married it with sprite-based graphics, creating a game where, for the first time, characters could be depicted as human as opposed to geometric figures. Other elements in the game, like the basketball hoops, were similarly designed with sprite-based graphics, making the game, at least visually, appear much more like reality than ever before. I kind of glossed over it, but just to reiterate, TV Basketball was the first game to ever use sprites for characters. Let that sink in for a moment. Here's a game that was a pioneer in using a specific graphics technology that had never been used in games before, designed by the person who would eventually create Space Invaders. Maybe I've been living under a rock, but I had never heard of TV Basketball before. You'd think such a pioneering title would get more attention, but based on what I can see, it's one of those titles that seems to have flown entirely under the radar, which is a shame. I love finding out little tidbits of information that I never knew before, especially about various gaming firsts, so to speak. This one was really interesting to me. Anyway, mild tangent aside, TV basketball may have looked revolutionary, but its core mechanics were still pretty much pong. In the game, you'd have two teams of two players each, and all they could do was move vertically in a straight line, similar to Pong's paddles. 
a ball would bounce around the screen, which could be deflected or hit by those players, with the goal being to send the ball through your opponent's hoop to score points. It was primitive, but it did represent a significant step forward in the way basketball games, and arcade games in general, would utilize graphics. TV basketball, beyond being the first sprite-based game, would be important for a couple of other reasons. For one, it represented just the second basketball game ever created, with the first being basketball for the Magnavox Odyssey, which we talked about just a couple minutes ago. Perhaps most importantly, though, TV basketball was the first non-American game to be licensed for American arcades, meaning before TV basketball, arcades in America did not have any games in them that had not been created and manufactured in America. Interestingly, the first company to attempt licensing TV basketball for America was none other than Pong's creator, Atari. However, that deal would eventually fall through, which allowed another early arcade game pioneer, Midway Manufacturing, to scoop up the license and release the game in North American arcades. Midway Manufacturing would eventually become one of the most influential and popular arcade game development and publishing companies of all time. But back in 1973, they were a company that had just started to get into interactive games, with their prior focus being mechanical arcade games, meaning rather than using a video screen and various digital electronic mechanisms to play the game, their games would have physical mechanical components to allow gamers to play their titles. With TV basketball, Midway began to explore the more digital realm of interactive entertainment, and the company would continue to evolve with technology to deliver a number of innovative groundbreaking games throughout the 80s and 90s. More on Midway in just a little bit. Let's shift gears and talk about basketball games in general. We've already talked about the earliest examples of basketball games, but you might be thinking to yourself, okay, cool, now that basketball games are actually on the scene, there's gotta be a ton that'll get released in the following years, right? And to that question, I would answer, eh, sort of, but not in the way you might think. At this point, I want to draw the distinction between generic basketball games and licensed basketball games, meaning those games that have a license from the National Basketball Association, or NBA, which is pretty much the premier professional basketball league in North America. To cut to the chase, the NBA was not in the business of handing out licenses to video game companies. They just didn't see the need to associate their brand with interactive gaming. And as a result, they were incredibly hesitant to allow any video game to include NBA elements like real teams in their titles. In fact, from the point that Magnavox Basketball was released in 1973, all the way up to 1991, 18 years later, only three basketball games actually acquired an NBA license and utilized NBA branding. That's not to say that there weren't other basketball games released, though, some of which were endorsed by and included actual NBA players in their titles. But there's a distinction between licensing the NBA brand and licensing players' likenesses, which are oftentimes either controlled by the individual player or by the National Basketball Players Association, otherwise known as the NBPA. So, while you might have a game like Jordan vs. Bird for the NES, it wasn't actually an NBA-licensed title. It was simply a Michael Jordan and Larry Bird license title. As the 80s progressed, a number of companies would make basketball-style titles, many of which attempted to bring the feel of playing the sport of basketball to home consoles and computers. While the technology was still not quite there to depict a fully simulated 5-on-5 game of ball, 
companies experimented with different styles of gameplay, all in the hopes of providing a basketball-like experience that, at a minimum, could capture the essence of what it felt like to play the game of basketball. Other companies, however, went in a slightly different direction, and one of those companies was, in fact, Midway. Recall that Midway had been the North American publisher of TV basketball back in 1974, and since that time, they had released a grand total of zero additional basketball-centric games. As the late 80s rolled around, however, they decided it was time to return to their electronic video game roots, and they began working on a new title that they hoped would inject a bit of arcade fun into the traditionally simulation-focused basketball game genre. That game was Arch Rivals, a title that Midway would release to arcades in 1989, almost 16 years after their last basketball game had been released. Now, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about Arch Rivals, primarily because it was one of the first basketball games that I played as a kid, as well as the simple fact that it was awesome. In Arch Rivals, you're able to select your player from a roster of eight different characters, who would then take the court alongside another character to compete in a game of two-on-two basketball. On-court action is exactly what you would expect from a basketball game. You dribble and pass the ball, you take shots, you score points, and you steal the ball by punching opposing players right in the face. Okay, so maybe that last part isn't necessarily a part of traditional basketball games, but it sure was a selling feature of Arch Rivals. In fact, Midway designed Arch Rivals exclusively around the concept that there were no real rules other than shot clock violations, even referring to the game as a basket brawl title to better represent the more arcadey aspects of the experience. Arch Rivals, much like many other basketball titles of the time, consisted of fictional players with a variety of stats that dictate how well a given character would perform, as well as fictional teams based on common cities, but not necessarily real NBA team names or logos. This was driven by the lack of an NBA license, which, like we've talked about, was something that was in very short supply back in the 1980s. Though, one feature that I thought was awesome is that the game included a hidden option screen that allowed arcade operators to update team names as they saw fit. Meaning, if you were playing the game in Philadelphia, which is where I first experienced the title, you might find a customized team representing the Philadelphia 76ers. With this being a customization rather than part of the base machine, there was no risk of brand or trademark infringement, which I thought was ingenious. Despite the fact that Arch Rivals was a unique, arcade-driven experience that players and critics enjoyed, it didn't quite get the mainstream attention that Midway had been hoping for. So, once again, Midway would put their basketball game aspirations on hold, shifting their attention to other endeavors. At this point in the story, a new figure comes into the spotlight, game programmer and designer Mark Turmel. Turmel has been an incredibly influential figure in the video game industry since the early 80s, yet his career and contributions to gaming, outside of a select few high-profile titles, aren't really talked about all that often, at least in comparison to legendary designers like Shigeru Miyamoto or Yu Suzuki. But the fact is, Mark Turmel's career stands on its own as a unique body of work that rivals other industry heavyweights. Turmel started creating games back in the early 80s, creating arcade-like experiences for the home computer market, very similar to how other developers got their start in the computer industry around that time. Turmel learned early on that making video games was something that he did pretty well, and even as a high school student, he was making $10,000 in royalties a month through the games that he had created. $10,000 a month in the early 80s as a high school student. Wow. 
Anyway, things really start to get interesting in 1984, when following the video game crash of 1983, Termel joined a company called Axlon, which was a subdivision of Hasbro Toys. At Axlon, Termel would begin to work on a video game technology that would change the world forever. Okay, that might be a little bit of hyperbole, but in actuality, it's kind of true, because Termel would be part of the small team of developers and visionaries who worked on the Hasbro Control Vision console, otherwise known as Project Nemo. The Control Vision was designed to bring the full-motion video LaserDisc arcade experience home, albeit through the use of VHS video cassettes. The best example from around this time of a LaserDisc-driven full-motion video title was Dragon's Lair, where players would watch a fully animated scene play out in front of them, with each player's unique choices leading to either success or peril. It was effectively a quick-time event game, which might seem simple by today's standards, but it was revolutionary for the time. While the Control Vision console would be cancelled in 1988 before it could be released to the market, its influence was felt throughout the 90s, as the full-motion video craze ran wild across video and computer gaming, with descendant companies like Digital Pictures making a name for themselves by creating a ton of FMV-based titles, some of which, like Sewer Shark and Night Trap, originated as Control Vision titles. If you want to learn more, by the way, about either Dragon's Lair or Sewer Shark, along with the history of Project Nemo, be sure to check out our episodes on Dragon's Lair and Sewer Shark. We dive deep into all of that stuff during those discussions. Regardless of the Control Vision failure, Mark Turmel was quickly becoming a well-respected developer and designer in the industry, accepting a job with Midway shortly after Project Nemo shuttered its doors. Turmel was hired to help revitalize the twin-stick shooter genre, and after joining Midway, one of his first assignments was to develop the game that would eventually become Smash TV, which was an incredibly influential and well-respected twin-stick shooter released to arcades in 1990. In the game, players would take part in a futuristic game show where the rules were simple. Kill or be killed. And win a ton of money and prizes, assuming you don't die first. Termel and the team followed that title up in 1992 with a game called Total Carnage, which was another twin-stick shooter that, though well-received, didn't really achieve any degree of mainstream success, with sales falling well short of expectations. Termel, as well as the broader Midway team, were disappointed with the lack of sales. So for Termel's next effort, he decided that he wanted to make a game that would have broader appeal to a wider variety of gamers. As he began thinking about what to do, he looked back through Midway's catalog of games, eventually stumbling across Arch Rivals, which was the arcade basket brawl title that had been released several years prior. It was at that point that Termel had an idea. What if he took the basic gameplay of Arch Rivals, but added the NBA license, creating a purely fun arcade basketball experience where players could choose their favorite NBA team and compete in a two-on-two competition with real digitized NBA stars? That concept would eventually lead to the creation of NBA Jam. While the concept sounds relatively simple, the actual act of creating NBA Jam was filled with challenging situations that would need to be overcome in order to create a blockbuster title, with one of the most prominent ones being how to acquire an NBA license. Like we've talked about, getting an NBA license for a video game was not something that came lightly, as the NBA was highly protective of their brand. When Termel and the team approached the NBA with the possibility of providing a license for an arcade game, the immediate response was a resounding no. And you might be wondering, why? Why would the NBA flat-out reject the proposition? 
Well, as it turns out, there were some negative perceptions about having an NBA game be playable in an arcade. So now I would like to relay just a little bit of personal perspective. As a child of the 80s and into the 90s, I went to the arcades a lot. I loved the variety of games on display, and there was something about being in a social setting where most people shared a common interest. Video games were not mainstream at the time, but in an arcade, it didn't matter. Whether you were playing a solo title or putting your quarter on the screen bezel to claim your place in line for the next round of a popular two-player fighter, for a gamer, the environment was intoxicating. When I would go to the arcades, I'd often go to one either near where I lived, or if my family and I were on vacation to the beach, I'd frequent one of the many boardwalk arcades that populated the southern New Jersey shoreline. I always knew they weren't necessarily clean places, which is pretty much expected when you have a revolving door of random people coming in and out of a location where the sole purpose is touching the same set of controls, oftentimes with residue and sweat left over from the prior player, but my experience in the arcade environment was always what I'd classify as clean fun, meaning it may have been a breeding ground for germs, but it was a decidedly family, or at least PG-13 kind of experience. That wasn't the case everywhere, though. And in some locations, like those in some spots of New York City, the environment was decidedly less family-friendly. I read of some arcades that were sandwiched in between a shooting range and an adult video store. Some others were in areas where it wasn't uncommon to be robbed right on the street in front of the venue, or even attacked inside the building. Suffice it to say, the term arcade could conjure up different kinds of images depending on your own personal experience. As it relates to the NBA, they had much more exposure to the more dangerous arcade venues than the family-friendly game palaces that I was used to, and as you might imagine, the NBA didn't want their brand associated with such a seedy element of society. So, Termel and the team started trying to shift the NBA's perception, literally sending them pictures of more family-friendly venues and letting them know that the term arcade was not synonymous with den of iniquity. After a second pitch, the NBA relented. Midway and Termel's team now had an NBA license. With that license in hand, the team had to figure out how to get NBA stars into the game, and here we see where technology of the time heavily influenced the graphics in the game. In the early 90s, we were just starting to see a shift away from purely hand-drawn pixel characters and environments into a style of graphics that was striving towards a more realistic portrayal of game worlds and their inhabitants. Rather than simply drawing a bunch of NBA players, Termel decided that they would use the new digitized actor kind of technology that Midway itself had just put to good use in their recently released Mortal Kombat fighting game. In that title, which will undoubtedly be the topic of a future podcast episode, Actors were filmed performing a variety of moves in front of a plain-colored background, which would eventually be removed and replaced using a technology known as chroma-keying. The film of these actors and their moves would then be loaded into a computer and digitized, serving as the basis for the game's animations and movements, and serving to create a fighting game experience decidedly different and more realistic than other popular fighting titles like Street Fighter II. For NBA Jam... Termel wanted to use the same technology for the various players that would be included in the game, but he knew he wasn't going to be able to get a bunch of NBA stars to come into a game studio to record their unique movements and likenesses. So he came up with an alternative. He scouted out the local streetball scene, and finding a few players of various skin tones who had flashy on-court moves, he persuaded them to come in and record all of the moves for the game. 
Midway ended up renting out a local warehouse for the multiple-day video shoot, where several different individuals performed all of the moves that would eventually make up the on-screen action. Similar to Mortal Kombat's digitization process, NBA Jam would film actors in front of a blue screen to later digitize those visuals in a computer. But the process wasn't nearly as straightforward as they would have hoped. Chroma keying, the technology that removes one color from an image to replace it with some other image, is dependent on quality lighting and the degree of contrast between the color that's meant to be removed from a scene and the rest of the colors in a scene. As an example, on many weather broadcasts, you see the weather person standing in front of a weather map, which oftentimes is the result of chroma keying. The background the person is really standing in front of is a simple green screen, and computers are able to take that specific color and replace it with a different image, in this instance, a weather map. If a weather person were to wear, say, a green shirt, though, things might get a little bit problematic, as their torso could also be removed from the image, which would result in a literal floating head telling you whether it was going to rain today. So, if you're filming in front of a green screen, it really isn't the best idea to wear anything with a green tint to it. Filming for NBA Jam was supposed to be a simple matter of extracting the blue screen background and leaving the developers with a bunch of digitized animations. The issue, however, is that the uniforms selected for the filming session were gray, and unfortunately, just close enough to a blue shading where it made the resulting digitized images difficult to extract without leaving a bunch of leftover jagged pixels around the edges of each character. So the development team had to go in and edit each and every frame of digitized graphics, one frame at a time. This was, as you might imagine, a painstaking process, but it was something that was incredibly important to get right. With all of those digitized images and animations cleaned up, the next task was to figure out how to get the digitized actors to look like NBA stars. Like we had mentioned, several different amateur players were selected to record animations for the game, all with different skin tones and a general body type that represented the majority of NBA players of the time. The team decided that having a more generic body type was fine, but they couldn't rely on the same generic styling for each player's face. To address that issue, the team began scouring any and all media that they could find. Photographs, magazine articles, game tape. Everything was fair game. Except, interestingly, simply asking the NBA players to come into a photo studio and have their pictures taken. Over an extended period of time, the development team eventually found enough images of each player's face from various angles to use them in the game. So they took the generic digitized actors, removed their heads, digitally, of course, and replaced them with the images of the various NBA players that would appear in the game. The end result was that, at least visually, every team's superstars looked like their real-life counterparts. Getting those digital superstars to play like their real-life counterparts was another matter entirely, as early versions of the game didn't have any differentiation between the players. They may have looked different, but they played identically, and that was certainly an issue. Imagine Shaquille O'Neal shooting and making a three-pointer. It would have been preposterous. By the way, for those who may not know, Shaquille O'Neal was an incredibly popular and talented basketball player who brought insane physicality to any game he played in, dunking with authority and otherwise scoring whatever he pretty much felt like it simply by powering through the competition. Trying to put the ball in the hoop from more than five feet away, though? Eh, he wasn't so good at that. He could barely make a free throw, let alone a three-pointer, so having a game where he was as equally talented as shooting as, say, John Stockton would have been crazy. And for those of you, by the way, who may not be into sports or basketball, 
Shaquille O'Neal was also the main character in the fighting game Shaq Fu. So, yeah, uh, it's probably better to focus on his basketball career. Anyway, the team decided to assign stats to each player, with some being better at shooting and others being better at dunking. There were a variety of other attributes as well, including speed and defensive capabilities, all of which contributed to making each player feel more accurate to how they would play in real life. But the team wasn't content to simply recreate the game of basketball. They wanted to add an arcade flair to the title, similar to Midway's prior basketball title, Arch Rivals. This resulted in the inclusion of a turbometer, which could be activated to improve a player's speed, toughness, and jumping ability. And they also included the ability to go on fire if you make three unanswered baskets in a row. And they also applied a very loose understanding of traditional NBA rules to the game, where shoving a player to steal the ball was entirely acceptable. Elevating the arcade action even further was the general gameplay and animations, which were designed to be completely over-the-top insane moves. As an example, if you're running to the basket and try to dunk the ball, you're not just going to jump up and do a one-handed slam. You're going to jump 15 feet in the air, spin in a circle several times, and then jam the ball through the hoop, breaking the backboard in the process. It was unrealistic, and it was crazy, but it was also awesome. Termel and the team had a goal to get as many NBA superstars in the game as possible, eventually settling on including the top two players from each team as of the 1992-1993 NBA season, and the initial version of the game did exactly that with no exceptions. If anyone here was a fan of the NBA around that time, you're probably saying, okay, wait a second. If we're talking the top players of that time, then that list has got to include Michael Jordan. And you would be right. However, shortly after the first test versions of the game were created, Michael Jordan decided to pursue ownership of his own license around his emerging brand, choosing to remove himself from the blanket NBA and NBA players licenses that effectively cover most NBA stars. His thought was that he could pursue more lucrative deals if he managed his own license. Billions of dollars later, his belief would prove accurate. But the bottom line as it relates to NBA Jam is that Michael Jordan had to be removed from the game entirely, since the NBA license Midway had didn't include Jordan anymore. So the team modified the game to remove Jordan, much to the dismay of basketball fans everywhere. Now, here's an interesting one, though. Despite the broader NBA Jam release excluding Jordan, I did read a story about something that would happen after the game was released. Apparently, shortly after NBA Jam had been released into the arcades, they got a call from Michael Jordan's agent. Jordan had been so impressed with the game that he wanted a custom version created with him included as a playable character. So Termel and the team re-added Jordan to the game and sent him a custom arcade cabinet so that whenever he played, he'd be able to play as himself. There was one other story I read that was unrelated to Michael Jordan, but it involved Shaquille O'Neal, and apparently he was such a big fan of the game that he ended up taking a full-sized arcade cabinet with him on every single road trip. Every time his team boarded a plane, the cabinet would be loaded on the flight and moved to Shaq's hotel room once they landed. First of all, that's simply awesome. And second, it really shows how popular the game would become among a very broad community. Going back to the story, with the team rosters pretty much finalized, the development team continued to test the title in various local arcades, and as they observed players, they noticed an interesting behavior. The way the game was designed, players would spend 50 cents for each quarter of the game that they played, with a full game being four quarters in length, which would be $2 for a full playthrough. 
Occasionally, a player might be losing pretty significantly after the first quarter, and rather than spend more money to catch up, they simply abandon their game. Similarly, if a player was beating the computer to a pulp, they may decide not to continue the game, thinking that there was no reason to continue spending money to just mercilessly beat a computer-controlled opponent. What that meant for Midway was that there was a very real possibility that sales could be negatively impacted. So, Termel and the team decided to add a computer assist feature, whereby the game was designed to keep scores close, sort of like the rubber band mechanic we discussed during our Mario Kart episode. If the computer was winning by a significant degree, suddenly, all of your shots would begin dropping and the computer started playing like they had blindfolds on. If you as the player had a good string of shots, the computer would suddenly become defensive juggernauts who could block and steal the ball at a whim. It removed a degree of skill-based play from the game, because it didn't really matter how well you played, the game would always be close. But it also added a dose of fun and drama, as you never really knew who was going to win the game until the final buzzer sounded. Adding to the fun and drama was the game's announcer, voiced by a man named Tim Kitzrow. Kitzrow was given a script of various one-liners to record, along with direction to make his delivery similar to sports broadcaster Marv Albert. What ended up happening was a recording session that was largely improvised and stands on its own as insanely memorable, with numerous phrases making their way to popular culture, and Kitzrow's performance launching him into a career that would span video games, television, radio, and stage, along with multiple engagements with various sports teams over the years. Kitzrow's performance was the icing on the cake of a game that the team hoped would be a huge success. With all of the various elements of the title finally complete, NBA Jam would release in arcades in April of 1993 and would become an immediate sensation, capturing the attention of critics and gamers alike. Nearly everyone who played the game loved the fast-paced action and addictive gameplay, and the graphics for the time were highly praised as helping to sell the title as a true, albeit arcade, NBA experience. With up to four players playing the title at a time, it became a mainstay at arcades literally around the world, and often had people anxiously awaiting their turns to play around. That popularity continued well beyond its initial release, with the game eventually grossing over $1 billion in sales, 50 cents at a time, within its first year of release. Adjusted for inflation, that equates to around $1.9 billion today. The game, like what happens when you hit three consecutive baskets, was on fire. NBA Jam would be ported to pretty much every mainstream home system of the time, with all of them being tailored based on the power of those consoles. We still weren't at a point where home systems could replicate the arcade experience entirely, but that didn't stop gamers from picking up the title and playing against their buddies from the comfort of their living rooms. In some respects, though, the home versions were even better than their arcade counterparts. For one, all of the home ports would receive updated rosters, which, while a relatively minor addition, was still appreciated. The other, more important feature, though, was that home versions had a bunch more secret characters than what we would see in the arcades. Now, we gotta talk about this. NBA Jam's secret characters were the stuff of legend at many schoolyards in the mid-90s. I personally recall talking to friends about what combination of initials and birth date, which was the way the game would track leaderboard entries, would unlock different characters. There were rumors of being able to unlock various NBA stars and legends, including Michael Jordan, as well as various public figures and characters from other game franchises. 
A day didn't go by without someone claiming that they had the inside scoop on some previously unknown brand new secret, and many quarters were lost trying to unlock one of these supposedly secret characters, only to discover that I was bamboozled by the filthy liars that made up my middle school student body. Regardless, the fact remains that the game did in fact have a bunch of secret characters, most of whom, at least in the first edition of the game, were members of the development team. Anyone who felt like playing as Mark Turmel was in luck. For the rest of us, though, we kind of had to wait for the home console releases to add more secret characters that would be somewhat more recognizable. Though the whole secret character thing really took off with NBA Jam's next release, which was entitled Tournament Edition. That version of the game came out almost two years after the original, and contained roster updates, a bunch of Easter eggs, and a number of recognizable secret characters from pop culture. If you ever wondered whether President Bill Clinton was a better baller than Prince Charles, now was your chance to find out. For a multitude of reasons, NBA Jam became a pop culture phenomenon, and beyond the tournament edition release that we just talked about, the core concepts and gameplay would continue to be refined for years to come across various new entries. Interestingly, though, after tournament edition, any game bearing the NBA Jam name wasn't actually created by Midway, but was instead released by Acclaim, who had won the rights to use that name in their future titles. Midway did continue releasing titles in the NBA arcade basketball genre, including spiritual successors NBA Hangtime and NBA Showtime, but they could no longer use the NBA Jam name that they had created. NBA Jam's impact was felt well beyond the sport of basketball, as the core gameplay elements of that title formed the basis of future popular Midway releases, including NFL Blitz, which, by the way, from my perspective, is one of the most fun football titles ever released. Other titles covering both baseball and hockey were released as well, proving that a fun arcade experience coupled with competitive gameplay is a winning combination, regardless of which sport you personally consider to be your favorite. Undeniably, NBA Jam's legacy is secure, as is its creator's Mark Turmel. He would go on to direct a number of those aforementioned Midway releases, after which he moved on to a high-ranking job at Electronic Arts until, eventually, he became the senior creative director for Zynga, one of the most successful mobile game publishers in the world. Turmel remains active in the video game industry even to this day. NBA Jam was a landmark release in video game history. As one of the few NBA-licensed titles of the time, and one that most certainly didn't take itself seriously, it presented a purely fun, addictive arcade experience that players all around the world loved. It remains to be seen whether NBA Jam will have any new releases, though in recent years there were several attempts at resurrecting and relaunching the franchise, including a full re-release of the original game as one of Arcade 1-Up's replica arcade cabinets several years ago. I know that for me, personally, NBA Jam will always hold a special place in my heart. Nobody knows what the future may hold, but I can say with absolute certainty that NBA Jam, even in its original form, is one of those games that will be remembered for countless years, if not generations, to come. going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play NBA Jam today versus when it was released around 30-ish years ago. 
So before we do that, though, let's just talk about the game of basketball, just in case anybody listening is not familiar with what basketball is or how the game is played. So game of basketball, you have two teams and they play a four quarter game. It's usually five on five. And the goal is to make baskets, as you would expect, which gains you either two or three points, two points if you get a shot in the basket from within the three-point line and three points if you shoot from beyond the three-point line. Over the course of a game, you have various things that might happen, and the game is played based on offense versus defense. One team, whoever has the ball, they're on offense. Whoever doesn't have the ball is on defense. The defenders are actively trying to prevent the offense from making a basket. And to do that, they can either steal the ball, they can guard their individual opponents. Typically in a five-on-five game, you either have individual members of each team that are guarding or playing against each other. Sometimes you have double and triple teams, depending on who the player is. But for the most part, you're trying to prevent the offense from scoring. You can steal the ball. Now to steal, though, you cannot make contact with the actual player. You can only touch the ball. If you touch the player while you're trying to steal, or even when you're trying to block, because you can also block somebody from trying to make a ball in. So if you make contact with the player, the other player on the team, you can get a foul, which means that if somebody was in the act of shooting the ball, they would go to the free throw line and they'd get a couple of free shots. If it wasn't in the act of shooting the ball, then typically the ball would just be turned over to the other team, except under specific circumstances with a certain number of fouls, like over five fouls, and they automatically get a trip to the free throw line. Anyway, this is not meant to be a full discourse on how to play basketball, but I'm just trying to give you an impression as far as how the game of basketball works, because when we start talking about NBA Jam's version of basketball, it is both similar but decidedly different. So anyway, there are a lot of rules in a typical game of basketball, and you really need to maintain those rules in order to prevent the action on the court from getting violent or having situations where one team is being treated unfairly. So all of these rules are in place, and at the end of the day, the goal after those four quarters is to have more points than what the other team has. NBA Jam distills all of that broader gameplay experience into something that is focused purely on fun. So let's talk about NBA Jam's version of basketball. It has four quarters, similar to a traditional game of basketball, but they are decidedly more fast-paced. In the NBA, you get four 12-minute quarters. In NBA Jam, you get four quarters that are three minutes apiece, and those three minutes fly by. I believe that it's not actually three minutes of real time, if I'm not mistaken. It's probably an accelerated clock kind of thing, but it is super fast in comparison to a normal game of basketball. Unlike the five-on-five competitive teams in normal basketball, NBA Jam has a two-on-two kind of experience. And the way that they did this, like we talked about, each team across NBA Jam picked their top two stars, their most recognizable stars, assuming they were able to get the player's license, which, like we talked about, related to Michael Jordan, couldn't quite do. But for the most part, every single team has their most recognizable stars in the game. Unlike a traditional NBA game, though, there are no rules. Well, there's pretty much no rules, and there are certainly no fouls. In the game, you can shove to steal the ball. You can throw elbows to knock down your defenders. There's also the turbo mode, which you can use to move around the court even faster, like at superhuman speeds and jump superhuman heights. You can also, if you make three consecutive baskets without the team making any baskets, or without the other team, rather, making any baskets, you get on fire, which basically makes it so that every shot you take, for the most part, will go in. 
Uh, and you can also hold the turbo button down indefinitely if you're on fire. All that said, NBA Jam did have a couple of rules that they included in the game. One of those was that you cannot goaltend. So goaltending, for anybody who may not know, when you play a basketball game or when you play a game of basketball, you can block the other opponent's shot. As long as the ball is going forward and upward, you can block the shot and it's considered a block. If you try to block the ball as it's on its downward descent, you will get called for goaltending, which basically means that the other team will automatically get however many points were associated with that shot, whether that's a two-pointer or a three-pointer. So think of it like this. If a ball was just about to go in the basket, somebody took a shot from three-point range, the ball is just about to go to the basket, but you jump up and you swipe it away from the net. That's going to be goaltending because the ball was going in, the trajectory was going in, and you altered the state of the shot beyond the point that it was considered quote-unquote legal in a basketball game. NBA Jam captured that exact rule, so you cannot goaltend in the game, otherwise you give the other team effectively free points. The other rule that NBA Jam utilized was the concept of the shot clock. So in a basketball game, you have 24 seconds to shoot the ball. And shoot the ball, you don't have to make it in, but the ball has to make contact with the basket in order for the shot clock to reset. So you can get a rebound, you can recover the same ball that you had shot, and the shot clock will reset itself as long as you hit the rim of the basketball hoop. NBA Jam does the same exact thing. And that is one of those rules where I can totally understand why they would want to include it, because otherwise a single team or a single player could effectively hog the ball the entire time, not take any shots, and then ultimately the game would just be really boring. So they did include the shot clock in the game, which I think makes sense even within the confines of the arcade NBA Jam experience. Now, I do want to talk about how, in the arcades, NBA Jam tracked leaderboards. Because in the arcades, a lot of times when you would play an arcade game, it was really all about trying to get on the leaderboard. There weren't all that many arcade games that you were focused on completing a story. It was really more about how can you get the top score and get your initials on top of that leaderboard for all of posterity. Or at least to try to do that until arcade operators would shut their machine down and leaderboards would be reset. I'm not bitter about that at all. Anyway, NBA Jam had an interesting way of tracking those leaderboards, as well as selecting secret characters. When you would start the game, you're asked if you want to enter your initials for record keeping. If you choose yes, you can enter your initials, or whatever three-character combination you want, along with your birth date, and that would effectively become the way your record and winning percentage would be tracked. Alternatively, this was also the way secret characters could be unlocked. Each one was assigned a specific set of initials and birth dates, and assuming you hit on the right combination, you'd be able to play as any number of pop culture figures, or more often in the first version, game developers. Before we begin, I do want to mention that for this particular episode, I primarily played the arcade version of the initial NBA Jam release, though I did also try out the Super Nintendo version, which I played way back when it originally came out, but I wanted to play it a little bit again just to get a sense of how the console experience compared to the arcade experience. The Super Nintendo version was definitely a bit lower quality graphics-wise, and it was missing some music and sound effects, but... Beyond that, it was a surprisingly faithful port of the arcade experience. Before we talk about the specific aspects of the game, like graphics and sound, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because, as we've talked about before, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I enjoy seeing how different companies would market their titles, how they would try to get people to actually buy their titles, because a lot of times, 
the simple act of purchasing a game was driven a lot by what the box looked like, what the back of the box said. You didn't necessarily have the internet with YouTube gameplay videos or magazines with articles that you could read reviews about every game. So I just like looking at the back of the box to see how those companies would market their titles. Now, NBA Jam is a little bit different because you can't really buy that in a box, and most people knew what NBA Jam was just by by virtue of the sheer popularity of the title when it was released. But regardless, we're still going to look at the back of the box, and this one, I want to look at the Super Nintendo version because, like I said, that was the version that I had purchased back when I was a kid. So, for the Super Nintendo version of NBA Jam, the back of the box says, Boom Shakalaka! Jam Home, the number one arcade phenomenon. From outrageous tomahawk jams to wild full-court shots, you control the super moves, amazing blocks, and awesome slam dunks of 54 of the NBA's hottest stars. Superhuman slam dunks, cannonball, two-handed, 360-degree helicopter, and more. Turbo boost for lightning-fast steals, incredible jams, and in-your-face rejections ultra-realistic digitized graphics, and play-by-play. Four-player adaptable for true arcade competition. Password saves your records and stats as you drive to the championship. NBA Jam puts you on the court and above the rim. And then they have some pictures from the game with some captions for the images and a few of the teams with their players on the back of the box. So that's exactly how they marketed NBA Jam when it was released for the Super Nintendo. And even if you didn't know what NBA Jam was, even if you didn't have the opportunity to play it in the arcade, it just made it look and sound like a really good game. So I think they did a great job marketing the game for people who may not have known what NBA Jam was, but especially for people that did know, you're absolutely going to pick that game up. And of course I did. All right, we're now going to start talking about the various aspects of the game, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. From my perspective, the game still looks great, especially the arcade version. All right, sure, the character models are all pretty much the same, aside from the skin color in each player's face. And those faces weren't really the most high-definition, detailed representations of any given player. But... Even with that limitation, the game still evokes the feeling of controlling your favorite NBA superstars. That feeling is helped by the smooth and fast-paced animations, which do serve to keep the action both fun and flowing. And I also have to give special mention to the insanity of some of the game's dunks. For those of you who may not know, I do enjoy the game of basketball. I don't really watch a ton of basketball. I used to watch more of it back in the 90s especially around the time when Michael Jordan was playing and the whole USA Dream Team from the early 90s. I was really into basketball back then. I'm not a super big fan. I still follow it on occasion. But the one thing I do enjoy every single year with basketball is the annual All-Star Dunk Contest. NBA Jam is like a constant dunk contest. And visually... I just can't complain about that. It just feels really good, and it looks really good on the screen. Moving on to the sound and music, I'll say that the music was pretty much traditional arcade fare, and it was designed to be played in a room with a bunch of other arcade machines blaring out their own sounds and music. And if you look at it from that perspective, the game's music and sound effects were passable. Though, if you listen to it from the comfort of your own home, like I just did when I played the game... 
it's pretty much an entirely forgettable soundtrack. Though, I will say that the sound effects remain a core, albeit standard, part of the overall experience. What isn't forgettable, however, is Tim Kitzrow as the announcer. Every time I hear Boom Shakalaka or He's on Fire, it immediately evokes such a strong feeling of fun and excitement that, honestly, the game just wouldn't be the same without it. I still remember hearing all of those one-liners blasting out of NBA Jam's speaker system at arcades in the 90s. Even at home today, they remain iconic. Moving on to the narrative and story, eh, there really is no story to NBA Jam. I wouldn't expect there to be. You play basketball, you try to win, you rinse, you repeat, and you kind of just do that. Honestly, it's perfect for the game because if there was a basketball story, it would just feel a little weird. And I recognize, total tangent, by the way, I recognize that modern NBA 2K games actually does have a story or they do have stories. NBA Jam, you don't need one. And I'm glad it wasn't there. Moving on to the playability and controls. The overall control scheme for the game is relatively simple, and it definitely helps with the whole pick-up-and-play design of the title. If you're in an arcade or you're designing an arcade game, you want controls that somebody can just walk up to, play, and understand what's going on. So with NBA Jam, when you start the game, you select your favorite team, which, like we talked about, are the two most well-known star players from that particular organization as of the time that the game was created. When you play the game, you only control a single player on that team, and you can have a buddy join in and play either with you on the team or against you, depending on what, what they want to do if you're playing multiplayer. If you don't have a buddy to play with, the computer will control your teammate. Assuming that your teammate is computer-controlled, you do have the opportunity to tell them when to pass or shoot the ball by you pressing your pass or shoot button. So that does work in that you can kind of control them for doing that. But otherwise, they navigate the court themselves without any way to really influence their behavior. You move around the court using your joystick, and there are dedicated buttons for shooting, stealing, and using turbo power. By default, moving around the game without turbo speed feels eh, okay, but using turbo, which does have a limited meter so you can't use it constantly unless you're on fire, using turbo makes the game feel much more exciting. And using turbo is also the only way to get some of the more crazy looking dunks since it does influence your speed and jumping ability. Stealing the ball can be accomplished either by hitting the steal button, which performs a traditional steal move, or holding turbo and pressing steal, which initiates a shove. Now, there is no guarantee that you're going to end up with the ball, but it does feel pretty darn good shoving your opponent down to the ground. Shooting, which is a big part of the game, is very straightforward, and your chance to make a basket is really governed by how far from the basket you are combined with your overall player's shooting stat. Now, I do want to say, I'm not 100% sure if releasing the ball at the apex of your jump improves accuracy. That's a mechanic that I've seen in other basketball games, and specifically, if we're talking about games of this era, a game NBA Live 95 by EA Sports, that was one of the major mechanics as far as how you can get the ball or how you can improve your accuracy, is if you release your shot at the apex of your jump, it would improve the accuracy of your shot. I don't know if that happens with NBA Jam or not, and honestly, 
it doesn't really matter. The action is fast-paced enough that you're really only going to not have control of the ball for seconds at a time. So it's not like if you miss your shot, you're going to be stuck and you're going to have to battle back and everything. No, it's it's so fast-paced that if you miss a shot, you're just trying to run down the computer, shove them down to the ground so that you can pull the ball or steal the ball back. Overall, the game controls well, and you definitely feel like you're in the game, so to speak, while you're playing. That being said, I do have some critiques about the overall playability of the title. First of all, while the game does control well, there are definitely some instances where things just feel a little too floaty. I had multiple instances where I knocked the ball away from the computer. I ran over to pick it up, but then ultimately I just slid right past the ball, which allowed the computer to retrieve it. This is one of those things that you simply need to get used to. It's not like it's a major issue, especially because the game is designed to be super fast paced, so much so that you never really have a chance to think about your mistakes all that much. But it is something that you're going to likely encounter while you play the game. It's also not always clear when you gain control of the ball as opposed to the computer, especially when your computer controlled teammate sometimes steals the ball and you just don't notice it. So it's there's enough visual elements on the screen that depict where the ball is and who's controlling who. So it's not like it's totally confusing, but there are situations where you don't recognize you have possession of the ball. And I had a few instances where I tried to jump to block an upcoming shot only to realize that a split second before that my computer partner had just stolen the ball. So when I pressed the button to jump to block instead, it made my computer partner shoot the ball, which A lot of times happened from all the way across the court, which obviously is not a very high percentage likelihood of going in the basket. Once again, that's not a major issue, but it's just something to mention. The biggest issue from my perspective, which also happens to be one of the game's defining traits, is the rubber band computer assist mechanics. We talked about this a little bit before, but basically... The game is designed so that the scores will always remain competitive, often coming down to the last couple possessions of the game nearly every single time you play. On one hand, this does create a sense of excitement to every game you play. On the other, it honestly feels like chance as to whether you're going to win or lose. Regardless of how well you play, you'll always have the computer breathing down your neck. I am a bit conflicted on this one because I do love the late game back and forth insanity, but I also appreciate skill-based gameplay, which computer rubber banding mechanics ultimately serve to minimize. At the end of the day, I've got to rank this one as a miss. Oh, and by the way, there's even some explicitly unfair code built into the game, which I found hilarious. Mark Turmel, the designer and developer of the game, is a Detroit Pistons fan, like a huge Detroit Pistons fan. Back in the late 80s and early 90s, the Pistons and the Chicago Bulls had a pretty strong back-and-forth rivalry, at least until Michael Jordan became Michael Jordan and the Bulls left the Pistons in the dust. Termel, in an effort to take his frustrations out, programmed the game so that if the Bulls were playing the Pistons in a close game, which, like we talked about, it almost always is a close game because of the rubber banding that they have in there, the Bulls would literally not be able to make a basket in the closing seconds of the game. I can see the comedy in the situation, but also, boy, I would have been really ticked off if I was a big Chicago fan and some developer made the game more unfair for me. Anyway, 
With all that said, and despite my critiques, the game still remains entirely playable and fun even today. And just a note, most of my critiques are focused on player versus computer matchups. If you have a bunch of human players, things are totally fine. So overall, how does it feel to play NBA Jam? It is just pure, simple joy with an NBA basketball exterior. If you're looking for something fun that doesn't require a ton of commitment or high levels of skill, this is your game. That said, I do think your enjoyment of the title will be somewhat defined by who you play it with. Against the computer, it's fun, but it also has very little depth, and when you're playing it in your living room without the environment of an arcade surrounding you, it ends up feeling a little bit flat. It's still fun, it's just not the best representation of the true NBA Jam experience. Playing the game against a few buddies is an entirely different thing, and remains incredibly fun. I would argue that there's still not a ton of depth because the characters can sometimes feel very similar to each other. And because there are only two players per team, there isn't really a ton of variety in the strategy that you can use in terms of tailoring your lineup to your opponent's team. But honestly, strategy is not what NBA Jam does well. It's not what it's designed for. So if you go into it with the right mindset, you're unlikely to have a bad time. I think you're going to enjoy your time with the game. So overall, what is our verdict? Does NBA Jam make it into the pantheon of classic gaming? Well, I want to get this out of the way up front. NBA Jam is an important game and was in its time a mega blockbuster. Playing the game today, you will get the same NBA Jam gameplay experience that you would have gotten back then, and it is undeniably fun. From a pure game perspective, I'd argue that it hasn't really aged much at all. But I would also say that our expectations have changed a little bit over the years. And playing the game today, at least against the computer, just feels like it's missing something. If I take a step back, I think the missing piece has to do with the fact that there is no amount of skill, one way or the other, that will dramatically affect the outcome of a game. In other arcade titles we've talked about, like Daytona USA, Your skills do appreciably improve over time, and that's demonstrated by increased standings at the end of a race. With NBA Jam against the computer, it just doesn't matter. Every game is a standalone experience, and every win or loss is pretty much decided by luck at the end of the game. It just leaves me feeling a little empty. Why even play the prior quarters if all that really matters is the last 15 seconds? Now, if I look at the game from a multiplayer perspective... Throw all that stuff out the window. The game becomes a crazy ecstatic experience that you want more of. It's like a night and day difference. For those reasons, and because I'd imagine many people playing the title today will likely be tackling it solo, I can't in good conscience induct the game into the pantheon of classic gaming. What NBA Jam is, however, is a very strong golden oldie. If you sit down and play a single game, you're guaranteed to have a good time, no matter how you play it. But if your goal is to sit down and play for an hour, I honestly think you're going to find the whole experience a bit lacking, unless you're playing with a bunch of buddies, a large extra cheese and pepperoni pizza, and a dimly lit room with speakers cranked up way too loud, in which case, well, you could end up playing all night long. Regardless, NBA Jam remains a fun, worthwhile classic gaming experience, and as such, is our newest addition to our list of golden oldies. 
was our episode on NBA Jam. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about games and classic technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Feel free to join the discussion over there. It's pretty awesome. We are having a ton of fun out there on Discord, so I'm definitely looking forward to others joining that server and joining the discussion with us. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the operative. No one lives forever. A groovy first-person shooter that really has flown under the radar a little bit. So I'm excited about checking it out. Feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that game. At the same time, I recognize you're probably listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services, and it would be great if you wouldn't mind leaving a review. It's not about bolstering star counts. It's not about getting a ton of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome. That means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is making sure that I get the feedback to make this the best possible podcast I can. I truly want to make this a podcast that everybody enjoys, and the only way to do that is to get feedback from you, the listener community, and make sure that we're hitting the mark. We are getting new listeners every single day, which is awesome, and I want to continue to grow that community. I want to continue to deliver the content that you all want to hear, so please let me know. And if you don't want to leave a review, that's fine. Just shoot me a note. Let me know what we're doing right, what we can improve upon. It would be greatly appreciated. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on the operative No One Lives Forever. Until then, remember... Sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>